I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part two in the series, Practicing the Way, Simplicity. Simplicity is an inward reality that moves out from within and changes the way we understand possessions and wealth. Before we can talk about our closets and bank accounts, we have to talk about simplicity of the heart. Look, I know I've got a long way to go and all, but what if I told you that following Jesus is simple? Seems like I'm contradicting myself, I know. After all, it's taken us years to make it through our line-by-line study of just one ancient biography of Jesus' teaching, the Gospel of Matthew. And really, we could start over with the first chapter and the first verse and do the whole thing again from different angles without repeating ourselves at all. And that's not hyperbole. It's that dense of a literary masterpiece. Which begs the question, how could anything that complicated ever be simple? And that's just one book of the New Testament. I think like many things in life, it's kind of a paradox. The way of Jesus is complex. The teachings of Jesus and the writings of the New Testament are wonderfully involved and artistically profound. But following Jesus, even so, is, well, in a, in a sense anyway, simple. I'm 37 years old, I think. And if I don't die before I get there, I've got many years ahead of me to accumulate wisdom and experience Yeah, I get it. Long way to go. Even so, I have been following Jesus long enough that I've begun to realize that my discipleship to Jesus kind of changes shape over the years, like any relationship. And in a lot of ways, it's the same basic shape the entire time, but in some ways it evolves, and you have to evolve with it. I've been following Jesus for something like, I don't know, I think about 22 years now. And on a related note, My wife, Abby, and I have been an item for 16 years, 13 of which we have spent as a married couple. And there is, I've learned over time, a very good reason that the Bible constantly describes our relationship with God as a kind of marriage. When my wife and I were dating, there was, like many couples, a mesmerizing infatuation. Everything was new and electrifying. And then we got married, and that connection took an immediate, profound step forward in romance and intimacy and commitment, because now we lived together for the first time. We were together more than we were apart. We spent most of our time in any given day together. And for years, of the early years of our marriage, our relationship was deep, and it was very light, meaning life was wonderfully uncomplicated. We traveled most of the time. We stayed up late all the time. We lived well below the median income, uh, below the national poverty line, actually. And we were very happy. And about five or so years in, things changed in big ways for our relationship. I started working for a church. We had our first kid. Our social circle expanded. We traveled less. The responsibilities were different, and the way that we organized our relationship and pursued intimacy and connection had to change to keep up with everything. We kept living below the median income line, and we were very happy. Then about 10 years in, we had two kids. I was leading a church plant. We were both in therapy as individuals and as a couple in counseling. We both 
had our own unique complications as individuals, and we had the shared complications of a married couple and parents, and we were enduring and resolving our first real complications as a married couple. That was 10 years in. There was a lot that we had to learn and relearn about ourselves and about one another during that time. We kept living below the median income line, and we were sometimes sad and sometimes angry, but also we were happy. Life is complicated that way. Now, 13 years in, you know, I'm more than happy to belt out the old trite but true cliche, I love my wife more now than I ever have, more than the electrifying early years, more than the free and easy days of the $300 apartment. That's how much it costs, by the way. Our lives are not perfect, but we have more intimacy and friendship and connection now than we did during our earliest days of, you know, the infatuation and the three-hour phone calls, which now sound miserable. Um, the electricity is still there, the magnetism, but it's different. It's not the same. It has evolved over the years. Compared to our early years of traveling on the road, being nocturnal and kidless, our life together now seems simple and domestic. We live on a quiet street. We have two kids and a third on the way. I go to work in the morning. We wash dishes. We run errands. We sit beside each other at night talking or reading books or watching friends on the same 13-year continuous loop, and we still live below the median income line, and we're still happy. If we live for another few decades, we have another few decades ahead of us, and already our story is a complex epic, I think, of joy and tears and romance and tragedy, but in another sense, it's a very simple story about love, boy meets girl. Part of us Resolving our first real complications was about us rediscovering a simplicity at the heart of our love amidst lives that had become chaotic. Not the exact same simplicity that we had in 2005 when we met, but simplicity nonetheless, a maturing simplicity. This story mirrors my relationship with Jesus in almost every way. Last week, we began a new series and a set of practices around the ancient spiritual discipline of simplicity. At Van City, we want to do more than, you know, sing songs about Jesus, or in this case, listen to songs about Jesus on Sunday evening, and then have you listen to me talk about Jesus for a half hour or so. We want to learn Jesus' teaching and his way of life, and then we want to actually put it into practice together. Trial and error, hands-on learning carried out in the imperfect messiness of community. Men and women and kids linking arms and saying, okay, let's give it a shot. It is, I think, beautiful in its inelegance. I saw a video this week of a gentleman named uh, Lorenzo who, after being shot in the head and surviving, began visiting a boxing gym to facilitate his rehabilitation and recovery. Now... I won't pretend to understand what this man is going through, and I really don't want to sound like some kind of sappy chain email that your grandmother sent to inspire you, but I saw in this video a metaphor for discipleship to Jesus carried out in community. Each of us is broken and wounded and imperfect. Each of us is finding our way along the often challenging road of discipleship. Each of us convinced that this road leads to life and that we must walk it. And if you notice in this video, someone is supporting Lorenzo so that he doesn't fall. But I doubt that that person is some kind of professional boxer or an expert of any kind. 
Someone is coaching him through the drill, the gentleman on the right side of the screen. But it's obvious to look at him that he isn't a professional fighter or anything. He's just a coach. He's there. He knows a little more. So you have different levels of expertise and experience, and you have to hold one another up and lead one another and hold one another accountable, and you just show up to the gym, as it were. This is our gym or our dojo, our training camp, the church, the community of God's people. The practices of Jesus, the spiritual disciplines, are the drills More than mere exercises for exercise's sake, they are a means to an end, and the end is God, to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, so that eventually we can do the kinds of things that Jesus did. And so, as a church, we are setting out to learn the ancient spiritual discipline of simplicity and to put it into practice together. Now, often when people talk about simplicity, they say, oh, right, minimalism. That's when you get rid of stuff or you own less or you you refine the old budget or something. And the answer is, yeah, simplicity includes confronting the poisoning effects of materialism and excess and greed and the effects that they have taken on our lives. But that is an aspect of simplicity. That's not the summary statement. Richard Foster defines simplicity as an inward reality of single-hearted focus upon God and his kingdom, which results in an outward lifestyle of modesty, openness, and unpretentiousness, and which disciplines our hunger for status, glamour, and luxury. A good friend of mine also has a great way of putting it. He says, simplicity is limiting the number of our possessions, expenses, activities, and social obligations to a level where we are free to live joyfully in the kingdom with Jesus. Now, looking at a definition like that one, maybe you can see what I meant when I began by saying that following Jesus is, in one sense, simple. It's not as contradictory as it sounds because the opposite of simplicity in this sense isn't complexity. The opposite of simple is superficial. The opposite of simple in this sense is trivial or the opposite of simple is vain or shallow or empty. Think of simplicity in this sense as synonymous with focus and purpose the opposite of which is distracted, purposeless, and empty. This is something I discovered in my journey with a rule of life, if you were around when we went through that process. The more I simplified the rhythm and routine of my life with focus and discipline and intentionality, the more meaning and purpose I found in everything from my morning time of prayer to my evenings watching friends on a continuous loop with Abby. A rule of life is a move toward a simple life, not a more complex one. And in the battle between a simple life and the pace of the modern world, a simple life is the underdog, to say the least. Quaker Thomas Kelly describes the fight this way. We feel honestly the pull of many obligations and try to fulfill them all. And we're unhappy, uneasy, strained, oppressed, and fearful. We shall be shallow. We have hints that there is a way of life vastly richer and deeper than all this hurried existence, a life of unhurried serenity and peace and power. If only we could slip over into that center, 
We have seen and known some people who seem to have found this deep center of living where the fretful calls of life are integrated, where no as well as yes can be said with confidence. Now notice that term, the center with the capital C. More on that in just a bit. This is why we're now one and a half teachings into our simplicity series, and I have yet to offer practical suggestions on how to simplify your wardrobe or order your budget. We will get to those things, but not yet. Before simplicity of possessions, we need to talk about simplicity of the heart. If you remember, and I'm sure all of you do, when Bart Simpson at his first karate class, he asked the sensei, Akira, my good man, when do we break blocks of ice with our heads? Uh, To which the sensei replied, first you must Fill your head with wisdom, then you can hit ice with it. No? You don't remember that? It's funny. Check it out. Now, stay with me on this. Simplifying the heart, making discipleship and life simple, is difficult but necessary work, not only because the world around us is loud and hyperactive and overstimulating, pulling us in hundreds of different directions at all times, not only is the outside world this way, Our inner world isn't much different. Richard Foster describes it as a kind of soul tug of war. He writes, within all of us is a whole conglomerate of selves, and all of these selves are rugged individualists. Each one screams to protect his or her vested interests. If a decision is made to spend a relaxed evening listening to Chopin, the business self and the civic self rise up in protest at the loss of precious time. The energetic self paces back and forth, impatient and frustrated, and the religious self reminds us of the lost opportunities for study or evangelistic contact. No wonder we overcommit our schedules and live lives of frantic faithfulness. This is why... We arrive at spiritual formation as disparate and broken and torn in need of healing and restoration and wholeness. We need someone to steady us, another to hold up their hands as we run drills. See, the modern evangelical Christian thing sort of hijacked and redefined the idea of the soul and the idea of salvation. In the American civil religion that masquerades as Christianity, the soul is the kind of immaterial part of you, the truer part, you know, distinct from your physical body. And salvation, in that same sense, is how that immaterial part of you gets to go to heaven rather than hell when your material body falls over dead. But in the Bible, you are not a soul in a body. You are a soul and you are a body. In the Bible, being saved is about the age to come. Yes, absolutely. But that is only one dimension of what it means to be saved. Being saved describes the process of everything we are coming into alignment with the rule of Jesus and the life of his kingdom. Now and in the age to come. Salvation is about the healing and restoration and wholeness of everything you are, body and soul, as King Jesus leads you into greater maturity and freedom. It's what Thomas Kelly meant by the center with a capital C, moving toward that center. In this sense, spiritual formation is like rehabilitation and recovery. And this recovery is really a simplifying of life or a return to the center with a capital C. He is the center. It's why our romanticized stories about rebellion against materialist culture typically involve much more than just 
purging a few pairs of shoes, whether it's Fight Club or, you know, the ridiculous Into the Wild. We romanticize the idea of removing ourselves from the chaos of corporate materialistic America and carving out some corner of peace and simplicity, a new life for ourselves with focus. And it's not a uniquely Christian concept. It's a very human urge. Part of us, all of us, feels that pull away from excess and overstimulation and toward the center, the simplicity of life. A place where we can truly invest our whole selves into that which actually matters. And that is simplicity of the heart. And apart from Jesus, the world is grasping for solutions. You know, today, self-help is a booming industry, especially amongst millennials. Self-help books are all the rage. And if you don't want to read a whole book, there are hundreds of podcasts you can listen to. And if you need flickering images to hold your attention, there's a whole Netflix docu-series you can watch. And if you, you know, can't make it to the yoga class, you can download the mindfulness app. It's everywhere. But Jesus' idea of simplicity is at radical odds with the world of Instagram self-help fads. The modern self-help movement is about looking within ourselves in order to actualize ourselves. Meaning, in the end, it's all about you. It's the girl-wash-your-face philosophy of you are the hero of your story. You are the key. But in the Bible story, you aren't so great. And you certainly are not the hero of your story. Now, don't get me wrong. In the Bible story, you are known and adored by your Father in heaven who is aware of all your dirty secrets and loves you anyway. But you and me, we're not so great at fixing things on our own. We tend to make things worse. For further evidence of this, see all of human history. So... Jesus recognizes that pull that each of us feel, the pull towards something other than the frenetic chaos of excess. And in the Bible, the answer isn't in you, but in God. God is the center. And when we move toward the center, we must strip away the distractions of materialism and excess and the empty promise of more. And as we move toward the center, the distractions of materialism and excess kind of just burn away, narrowing our focus and our hearts on the center to which we are drawn, which is God himself. Now, before we end, turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, we're almost there. Just want to look at one more thing from the story of Jesus I was inspired uh, recently by a fantastic 2020 film called The Sound of Metal to resume a more routine practice of the spiritual discipline of silence and solitude in my daily practices. So in the morning and in the afternoon, I sit quietly in God's presence. No wish list, no worship song, just togetherness. My mind on him, his mind on me. And as I sat this week, it occurred to me the depth of my double-mindedness. As I was thinking about this practice and this series, I thought of how divided my heart can be. Because I realize I want God. That's a very sincere longing of my soul. It's not superficial. I don't just say that up here. I want God. But I also want comfort and things and success and entertainment and frivolities. And it's not necessarily that these things are inherently bad or always bad or that 
to be holy. We can never enjoy entertainment or frivolities. It's just that my desire for these things often exists independent of my desire for God, meaning they distract me from God and they fragment my focus. This is why Foster defines simplicity as an inward reality that results in an outward lifestyle, one before the other. He goes on to write this, experiencing the inward reality liberates us outwardly. Speech becomes truthful and honest. The lust for status and position is gone because we no longer need status and position. We cease from showy extravagance, not on the grounds of being unable to afford it, but on the grounds of principle. Our goods become available to others. Before simplicity expresses itself in freedom from the anxious attachment to possessions and money, it manifests itself inwardly as simplicity of the heart the refining focus on God. And then it moves out from the heart and through the lifestyle, the closet, the home, the calendar, the voice, and so on. In Project Mayhem, it's called hitting bottom. In the Bible, it's called spiritual formation. This is the simplicity of the heart. As it is written in the Hebrew wisdom literature, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. Now, before we end, let's revisit last week's text and look at it from one more angle. If you're there, look at Luke chapter 12, and let's read beginning with verse 22. We read, Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life. Therefore is a a continuation of what Jesus said earlier in the chapter, which was that life does not exist in the abundance of possessions. Jesus is connecting worry to materialism and excess to money and things. When you attempt to garner life from a bank account or a home or a career or an Amazon wish list or an experience or a success, you will worry You will always worry because any and all of these things can, and I would argue, will be taken from you. So Jesus says, do not worry about your life, what you'll eat or about your body, what you will wear, for life is more than food, the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the wild flowers grow. They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today, tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. In biblical theology, the heart, as in do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink, the heart is more than just the way we use the word. We kind of say it as an emotional disposition. But in the Bible, a heart is a person's thinking and feeling and will. Verse 30, the pagan world runs after all such things and your father knows you need them. Seek his kingdom and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, says Jesus. For your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will never fail. Where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
Set yourself free, Jesus says, by letting go and seeking instead his way of life, the kingdom of God. But what does that mean? To seek God's kingdom is to invest the resources of your life, time, money, energy, attention, everything into God, God's call over your life, God's vision for the world around you. A friend of mine described this as seeking out and living for two things, God's presence and God's pleasure. God's presence is not an energy field in the universe. God's presence is not a good vibe. When the scriptures talk about the empowering presence of God, they call it the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit is referred to as a he, not an it. And that doesn't mean that this Holy Spirit is a human man. It just means that the Spirit is a person, a living and relational being through which we speak to and hear from God and through whom we experience God's presence. Now, all of that sounds hopelessly esoteric and overtly spiritual. And that's the problem. To learn to practice the presence of God, overt spiritual activity with quotation marks, like worship or prayer or a church meeting like this one, these things are no more holy and imbued with God's accessible presence than making a morning cup of coffee or organizing a sock drawer or driving to work or washing dishes. And see, the thing is, I'm a pastor. So this is my job. And I spend one evening a week at a church gathering. What about the whole rest of the week? I spend an hour every morning reading my Bible and praying, another half hour or less in the afternoon praying. What about the other 22 and a half hours of the day? Is God not around then? Am I just supposed to ignore him during that time? Are we to spend most of our everyday lives oblivious to the presence of God? Or are we supposed to lock ourselves in a prayer closet all day long? There must be a way to practice moving into that presence in the chaos and the mundanity of daily life, just as in the quiet sacredness of prayer and communion and quiet time. So think about it this way. Imagine a day when you've received really, really good news. You're filled with joy or relief or excitement or all of those things. It might be like an opportunity that you realized you're getting or some special occasion or a long-awaited visit with someone you love. Think of the way that your heart and your mind will move toward that awareness throughout the day, whether you want it to or not. Like a kid on Christmas Eve, you just can't stop thinking about this exciting, wonderful news. Now, you probably see where I'm going with this and don't feel bad. Our hearts do not feel that involuntary pull to God moment by moment naturally. The world itself is arranged in such a way as to cloud God from our sight, distract us from him, numb us to him. But that doesn't mean that we can't learn it. You just have to practice. You do this through a rule of life. You do this through practices. You do this through spiritual disciplines. You create modes and routines that bring your thinking and feeling back into God's presence as they drift elsewhere throughout the day. So the obvious things, you wake up and you pray and you read the scriptures or other things, you might take a short prayer walk during the day 
Or maybe you pray with your kids before bedtime or you bring God into a conversation with someone in your community or a friend of yours or you pick some routine mundane thing like washing dishes or a commute and you dedicate that time to thinking about God or talking to God or listening to a teaching through podcasts or listening to the scriptures on your app, your Bible app. My watch beeps at 2 p.m. every single day and I pause what I'm doing to pray, remember God, and remember that I am in his presence no matter what I'm doing, even if just for a moment. And all of these things are deliberate, disciplined efforts to move into God's presence and find ways of staying there a little longer every time against that pull of life's frenetic chaos. We realize life is pulling us away from God's presence. We won't go there unless we move into it uh, voluntarily. And God promises to meet us in that space. God is always with us, but we are not always with him. We have to make moves. We have to practice his presence. If you're waiting for that to happen on its own, trust me, you're going to be standing in line all day long. Once we are in God's presence, we just might learn a thing or two about God's pleasure. Or another way of putting that, what God wants and what makes God happy. Now this one, I'll admit, is even harder to understand. I think about lines from the scriptures. Jesus himself said, I always do what pleases the Father. Or Paul later said, we make it our aim to please him. There's something about discipleship that means pleasing the Father, making him happy living in congruence with what he wants. This is the great paradox of discipleship, that self-fulfillment only comes through self-denial. As Jesus put it, take up your cross and follow me. Look, he made it up, not me. Explaining this to an outsider is like trying to explain your most bizarre inside joke. It'll never make sense until it makes sense. Somehow, the more I deny my own carnal, selfish whims and desires and submit instead to Jesus' teaching, which often moves me in the opposite direction of what I want or how I'm feeling, somehow this is when I experience joy. Somehow, submitting to Jesus' way of life, which typically grates against the message being broadcast on all sides, the message emanating from my own selfish desire and ambition, somehow, submitting to Jesus is when I actually experience peace. And I have tried it both ways. It's then and only then that I let go and experience the freedom of being known and loved and I sense the Father's pleasure over me and for me, and I can start to see the world through his eyes rather than mine. It is the strangest thing, and that, I think, is simplicity of the heart, the singular focus of the soul that clears away excess, and that is why it begins here rather than in your closet or your garage or your checking account. It's how we steward the teaching of Jesus in our hearts, incubating it there so that it can be loosed through our lives and into our homes and wallets and schedules and shopping habits. Now, there's an exception to every rule and all that, but I would argue from the wisdom of other smarter followers of Jesus, I would argue that there is typically a direct relationship between the amount of wealth and possessions that we hoard and how close or how far we are from the holy center of God's presence and pleasure. How far we are from simplicity 
of the heart. And here's why I make that argument. One, excess is, is a distraction for the mind. Again, this is not a uniquely Christian concept. I'm sure some of you have heard about the evidence we have that clutter reduces productivity. It's not just clutter in your home. It's the clutter of your time or your schedule, your commitments, your workload, your social media feed, your TV shows. Often, physical clutter can represent life clutter. When you just haven't got around to organizing that one shelf because of everything else going on in your life or when the trash piling up in your car becomes like a metaphor for other things unaddressed in your life. Clutter creates distraction. It reduces your capacity to think about God because you're looking for things or you're worrying about an unfinished chore or which outfit you'll wear or which night it is to hang out with which person or putting away toys all day. People ask why I wear the one out, why I own and wear the one outfit, and it didn't actually start with my passion for simplicity, but because I never wanted to spend any more time ever thinking about what I was going to wear. Excess distracts the mind. Excess also drains your time. The more you own, the, the more time you invest in upkeep. The older I get, the more I realize the preciousness of time. A purchase is rarely just a purchase. The new car will need maintenance. The new outfit will add yet another option to a closet filled with options. Both will need cleaning and organization. More streaming options mean more shows. Have you seen this? Oh my gosh, you have to watch that. This one is on Netflix, but that one's on Disney+. Plus. I will watch the next one after I finish the other three that I started. My wife likes this one, so we watch it together. I watch this one by myself. Excess drains time. And finally, excess deceives our hearts. It sounds dramatic, I know. But the promise of more always underdelivers. It's a dead end. Nowheresville, USA. It's why Jesus warned in his parable of the four soils, if you remember that story, the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desire for other things, they come and they choke the word and they make it unfruitful. And we behave as though this is something we simply cannot comprehend. We baffle at the Kurt Cobains and David Foster Wallace's of the world with all the success and recognition and, and wealth, and yet willfully put themselves on the receiving end of a shotgun blast or hanging from a rafter in their homes. The proverbial Anthony Bourdain, who was paid millions of dollars to be famous by traveling the world, eating delicious food, and with interesting people, and he, Anthony Bourdain, hanged himself in a luxury suite in France without a trace of judgment-impairing narcotics in his system. And oh, we sit back in disbelief, shaking our heads, and we ask, how could he? We say, well, me, if I had those things, I would be happy. And we turn a willful blind eye to every miserable rich person and certifiably insane celebrity because surely, surely it can't be that the whole thing is a sham. But it is. It is a sham. My own experience is narrow, I'll admit. I've never been rich or famous. But listen to this. When Abby and I were newlyweds, circa 2007 or whatever, our entire budget for everything in our lives was something to the tune of $500 a month. Rich by a global standard, poor by everyone around us standard. And we lived in Georgia, life was cheap. We said to ourselves, man, look at that. We managed to pay for rent and buy groceries and cover utilities with that $500. Hooray! And we gave each other a high five. 
We didn't go out to eat ever. We didn't buy anything ever. And we never talked or worried or cared about money or having more. The same way as how now we don't spend any time worrying about like a private jet. That's how we thought about life beyond $500 a month back then. And I'll never forget the moment, the moment I felt this shift in me. Got hired to work at a mega church as a videographer of all things. And I'm still below the poverty line making, I don't know what it was, $15 an hour or something like that in Portland. But my God, rich compared to that Georgia budget, I couldn't believe it. Now we have a budget. We could do things. We could buy things. And for the first time in my adult life, I experienced an ironic dissatisfaction with it all. And I remember thinking, why don't I get paid more? So-and-so gets paid more. And for the first time ever, Abby and I, we sat down, we outlined a budget for generosity and tithing and everything, and we allowed ourselves, you know, fun money or an allowance. It sounds so condescending. We're giving it to ourselves, but whatever. $15 a month each, I think it was something like that. And all I could think was, man, I wish this was more. All I could think was that it wasn't enough for this other thing that I wanted. And for every person I've met and known or talked to or pastored over the years, every person wanting to strategize their 10-year career plan or just make just a little more, or every person angry about a promotion that never came or wanting to become the next influencer so they can go on free vacations funded by fake little pictures of a lie, we simply cannot believe that the whole thing is a sham. That even the very best of it, that all of it, isn't enough to keep some people out of a noose found dead in a luxury suite in France. The image is chilling, the implications even more so. And look, I get it. This is a difficult lie to silence. Abby and I haven't had the fun money thing in our budget in forever. I can't remember the last time we did. And the only way we buy things for ourselves now is if someone gives us money for Christmas or gift cards or something like that. And, you know, that by design. And still, still I find my mind wandering to Amazon.com and the fantasy of that thing, whatever it is. And I think, man, when my birthday comes around and somebody gives me a gift card, I'm going to get this Blu-ray. It is a difficult lie to destroy. That thinking, and I get that, I'll be a little happier. And more often than not, the lie ends up destroying us. So the follower of Jesus we are learning to ask a different question. Instead of asking, how can I get a little bit more? We ask, how can I live with less? This week's practice is up at vancity.church simplicity. This week, it's about deciding what matters to you. It's about refining your values. Before you say no to, you know, the extra pair of shoes or whatever it might be, figure out what you're saying yes to instead. Why can't you commit to that extra thing or start another mini-series or buy another pair of whatever because your values are organized in such a way that what matters most takes precedence and the simplicity of life only leaves enough room for so much. Figure out what matters so you can begin to clear away that which does not. And I think you'll see that life becomes a bit more simple. Again, this is not some kind of imposition that Van City's leadership will enforce with guilt and rule mongering. This is an invitation. 
It is an invitation into an experiment in living. Why not see if Jesus was right? Why not take a step and watch what happens? I say, why not see if Jesus is right? Not in some kind of condescending, oh, you don't really believe it, but you'll see. I say that because I think we all recognize that we hear Jesus say things like, it is better to give things away than to keep them for ourselves. And we say, yeah, wow, man, that sounds profound. But deep down, we don't believe that that's actually true. We talk about the spiritual disciplines as a means to an end, the end being God. And it can seem abstract, The truth is, it can be hard to explain the way that God's presence brings freedom and peace over time. So, we are inviting you to try some things and find out if following Jesus is really simple. Let me pray over our church before we worship. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vancity financially at vancity.church/give.